Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning, and I trust that uh, you have come with your hearts full, ready to worship the Lord. What a privilege it is to be able to do that together. Um, I've been in different places in Scripture, just um, in my personal uh, devotions. One of the things that um, has stuck out is the majesty of the Lord. Um, I don't know how often maybe you have thought about the majesty of the Lord, but um, He is majestic. And there is no one like our Lord. That's why we're here today, because there's no one like Him. Um, I have a definition of majesty. Um, This comes from a KJV dictionary. It says, greatness of appearance, dignity, grandeur, the quality or state of a person or thing which inspires awe or reverence in the beholder. Um, The truth is, you could probably illustrate for me the things that make your jaw drop. You're like, whoa, wow, you know. I've been to Niagara Falls, and it's incredible. We're about to have a Niagara Falls this next week. You're about to be able to fish at your front front door. Um, Nakalulu Falls, y'all see pictures of that? Man, it's incredible. Um, But there are places, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I mean, there are places where you go, and you're just like, whoa. Um, And there are people that you meet in life, and you're like, wow. I remember um, years ago, PGA being here in, um, in Birmingham at Shoal Creek. And I shook the hand of Jackless. I mean, for a golfer, that's a big deal, right? Um, if you're into NASCAR, it doesn't mean a thing to you. But for a golfer, I mean, and, and it was really cool. I wasn't going to tell this part, but I'm going to tell you this. He was coming up with Ben Crenshaw and Tom Watson, and they were, they were, the water cooler was in the back by the tee box. And I'm like, I really did this. Lord, please help him to walk back to this water cooler. And he answered my prayer. He walked back to the water cooler, and he looked up right at me and shook his hand. But, you know, we're around people sometimes in life where we just are like, wow. But... There is no comparison to our God. There is no one like him. So I thought for our purposes this morning, as we started our service, we could stand and read together these verses. I think there's four of them I put together for us this morning. So if you just stand, let's read these together. Verses about the majesty of our Lord. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And then from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, David's prayer. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. And then these next two slides come from the Psalms. 
The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And then from Psalm 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And may the Lord be praised uh, this morning. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, you are majestic in holiness. In fact, in Isaiah, the scriptures tell us that you are holy, holy, holy. You're separate, separate, separate. There is no one like you. Lord, we live in a very busy world. It's just for us to be able to pause this morning and take a few moments out of the day to worship together is really quite something. Um, we don't get moments like this too often. So, Lord, I'm just asking this morning that you would remove the distractions, um, whether it be our phones that are in front of us or just thoughts about the rest of the day, the things that we will do, that we've planned in any way. The week that's ahead of us, and I want to pray that you would just Help us to separate our minds to worshiping you. Because as we just read from your word, you're different from everyone else. You are majestic. And I was thinking about this week, Lord, that um, how does that look in our lives? If we're in awe of you, And how does that translate? And one of the thoughts I have is if we're in awe of you, then we have the mind to be obedient to you. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, in that obedience by your spirit, that we might glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. And we know every single day, Lord, we're confronted with the flesh. And I pray that you would help us to be led by your spirit so that we may please you in all that we do. And I pray this morning that your spirit would lead as we worship together in the name of Christ. Amen. Sing with us as we sing about his great mercy. What love could remember those homes we have done? Omnipotent, unknowing, we knows not their song. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. Would 
our testimony sing them years i spent in vanity and pride caring not my lord was crucified knowing not was for me he died on calvary mercy there was great and grace was free pardon there was multiplied to me my burden so found liberty at Calvary. I God's word at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Till my guilty soul and glory turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There, my burden so found liberty at Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. great and grace was free pardon there was multiplied to me there my burden soul found liberty at Calvary sing about my Savior's great love I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus 
from Nazareth. No, first verse, please. First verse. Go back to the first verse, please. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Second verse. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered, died alone. How wonderful, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful. Savior's love for me when with a ransom and glory his face I last shall see done in a while. A little chorus here. Oh, how he loves you and how, how he loves me. Let's sing this together, please. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. 
song that the choir is going to sing right now <coughs> kind of supports that, how much he loved you and how much he loves me. Because there was this place called Calvary that he went. Here you're talking the creator of the whole universe, the savior of the whole world, going to Calvary to die for something that he did not do. He died for something that you did. And that I did. He took the sin on him so that we could have his righteousness. That's the only way it could work. It's the only way we could do it. He could do it. And what a marvelous plan that it was. And the cross was enough to do it. it wasn't any, we don't have to do anything to support it. We don't have to do anything. We just accept that Jesus Christ died on us. Uh, down on the cross for us. We accept that because there's nothing we can do. The cross was enough. I want you to listen to the words of the song as we sing. Prisoner of the guilt and shame I was living in, aware of my transgressions, held captive by my sin, never knew I'd need a savior to bridge the gap between the holiness of God and my own humanity. In love the Father saw everything that I be. He came down to where I was, and with grace he met my need. He became the sacrifice that paid the awful Jesus 
thankful for him and for the choir. Uh, they minister to our souls, and we just really appreciate them. Next week, I will be the guest speaker. Um, <laughs> you can pray for me during the week. I feel like I'm dating at a new church. Um, you know, We've been very privileged to have, um, every week that I've been out, tremendous men of God, men who love the Lord, um, men that I trust to be behind the pulpit. Um, I think it is kind of unique in our day when men stand behind pulpits and open God's word, but we've come to hear from the Lord, and how do we hear from the Lord? We open God's word. This morning, um, we are privileged to have Bob and Susie Flanders with us. You know, we support many missionaries here at Grace. And this is kind of how it's worked for me in the process over the years. I meet our missionaries, and then they become my friends. That's what's so unique about Grace. We get to meet our missionaries and do life with them from afar. I mean, you think about how privileged we are just in our own body to have the number of missionaries that we do. And they sit in our congregation. And then they leave our congregation and they go wherever the Lord calls them to go. And then they come back. And we get to hear reports on what God is doing around the world. And um, I just believe that's a privilege. And I'm thankful for it. And so... When I first met Bob and Susie, they were missionaries. Now they're my friends. And I really, really appreciate them. Uh, Bob and Susie are with Spirit International Ministry. They have been missionaries for 40 years now. That's a good amount of time. 40 years ago, Bob, I was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know that. I, I just thought of it. Oh, wow, that's a long time ago. But um, we really appreciate Bob and Susie and their faithfulness. Their ministry is primarily in North Vietnam, and he may share some of that with you this morning. But it's a privilege to have Bob Flanders with us. And so, Bob, you come up. Appreciate that so much. Appreciate you, brother. Glad to see you on two feet. Uh, this is Susie right down here. I'm just going to mention that because uh, 
she's got something you might be interested in, in picking up at the end of our service and uh, yeah so go and see her I've got lots of greetings that I like to give when we come and visit you guys or other supporting churches I'm not going to take time to do that today because I've got a lot that I want to share with you um, I am going to be sharing from God's Word second Corinthians chapter 1 so if you want to find that you can uh, and I was thinking initially that that's what I would do I would just preach but as I thought about it I remembered uh, a charge from the Old Testament aimed at our generation if you can go ahead and put those pictures up there that I'm going to be talking about I appreciate that uh, the charge is to the older generation to declare to the younger generation to the next generation the mighty works of God and we started this service today by reading several verses about God's majesty and his mighty works his awesome works there's nobody like him and it's true and sometimes we forget that sometimes life just goes on and you know we have a few ups and downs not too high not too low and we know God is there we appreciate that he's there we pray God bless us God help us and things just seem to, to get along and we forget about the fact that God rules the universe that he rules over every nation that to God there's absolutely nothing impossible he put stars in the sky he named every one of them there's none of them missing and uh, no sparrow falls from the sky without his approval and knowledge so we're talking about the awesome God of the universe and it's our job older generation to declare to those coming after us what God is doing and what has what God has done and if we don't do that in one generation a sense of the majesty of Almighty God will be lost you could see it in the, in the Word of God it it actually has happened in the past so I want to tell you uh, this morning a story um, that happened very recently and it's an amazing story that I have no doubt at all you're gonna hear about when you get to heaven I'm gonna hear about it as well and I'm only gonna tell just a little bit of that story it's a true story um, we encountered some people a few months ago when we were in North Vietnam and heard from their mouths some of the things that God has been doing and they were amazed at it but they just accepted the fact that God can do the impossible so I want to share that with you and I you know I thought of uh, I actually came this morning. I don't know where that went uh, I got dressed this morning and I put on a sweater vest and I was all ready to go and I was thinking you know we're going to talk about this generation thing and I don't want to emphasize the generation gap between me and some of the younger folks and I get here and Thad is wearing a sweater vest so for all of you who don't own a sweater vest and would not dare wear one if you did this is for you so I'm waiting for the pictures I know they're coming I'm assuming they're coming I'm real hoping they're coming so I'll I will tell you this uh, while we're waiting for those to come up there I grew up in a non-Christian home I'm from Florida the very first time I came in contact with the gospel was in the country of 
Vietnam. I was in the Marine Corps. Fellow Marines began to share Christ with me. At that point, I didn't believe in the existence of God or any purpose in life. And as I watched this young Marine's life and began to listen to him, I realized that if there is God who's the cause for everything, then there's a reason for everything in my own life. If there is no God, then there's no cause, there's no meaning. Live or die doesn't make any difference. How you live or die makes no difference if that's the end. But it isn't. And because of God's gracious work in my life, beginning in Vietnam, by the grace of God, we came to know Christ and have walked with him and served him now for 40 years. Got on an airplane, Birmingham, Alabama, February 20th, uh, 1980, and took off for Japan, not knowing if we were going to fail or uh, be used at all of God in any way or, or form. We just trusted that he was calling us and sending us, and we intended to go. And so we went, and I will tell you a brief story, since we have lots of time here. Uh, so we were uh, traumatized. My wife had never been on an airplane or a commercial airplane before that day. Uh, we had two kids with us, little baby and six-year-old son. They'd never been on an airplane. We were all traumatized. We were leaving everything. Susie was being torn away from a family that she l deeply loved. I was being torn away from a spiritual family that I deeply loved and didn't know what we were going to face. And so we were in tears and devastating and sitting there. And by the grace of God, about an hour into our flight to Los Angeles, a guy that we knew from our home church walked down the aisle. He didn't know we were on that flight. We didn't know he was on that flight. But how God comforted us and were able to talk with him and share with him and pray with him, God energized us through that. Well, that's an amazing thing, but that's not the end of the story. 25 years later, on our final flight back to the States from Japan, very traumatized, not knowing what God had for us going forward, just sensing the loss of a life and a ministry and people that we had come to love. And we were sitting in silence in tears on that flight and about an hour before we got to Birmingham this is no joke you couldn't make this up the very same guy walks down the center aisle <laughs> we see him he sees us we're in shock he's in shock and how God encouraged and uh, blessed us because we knew that, that he was there with us. And he was in our going, he was in our coming, he was in whatever comes next. And by the way, he's in wherever he's uh, sending you in life and uh, the way he's planning to use you. Well, do we give up on that? I mean, I can... Oh, okay, yeah. God is sovereign, we blame Microsoft. <laughs> whatever, your, whatever your theology will allow, I'm good with that. <clears throat> uh, okay, well, I'm just going to keep talking. Um, 
And then we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians here in just a second. About 10 years ago, um, I had the opportunity to lead two teams back to the country of Vietnam and to begin to do training in Hanoi, which is the capital. And by the way, I think this service is going to be streamed, and this will be the first time that I am publicly using Vietnam and talking about Hanoi other than in person when there's nothing going to go out from there. Uh, the reason I'm doing it today is not because there's not risk involved in that. Um, could be intercepted, that information. The, the reason I'm doing it is we're already uh, not under the radar anymore. God has opened up some doors of ministry. Even in Hanoi, we've, we've been in, in uh, a celebration a year or so ago where the, the Minister of um, Religious Affairs, which is a Communist Party official, was in a place where we were recognized as people who are doing ministry. And by the way, that we were representing you, so if anything happens to us, they're coming after you next. Um, so it's known that we're doing ministry in Vietnam, and God, is, God has allowed that and allowed it to happen publicly. So a lot of our ministry in Vietnam is in the city of Hanoi, which is the capital of all of Vietnam, but it's certainly the center of culture and politics and everything in the north. And God has given us some relationships with Vietnamese pastors and ministers there. And so a lot of our work is uh, setting up teams to go there and do ministry and go there and do ministry. A lot of our personal ministry is encouraging our partners. I'm going to talk about that a little bit from 2 Corinthians. But also a part of our ministry there is training. And, and I was just getting ready to tell you, 10 years ago, took two teams to do training. We did it in secret, but now we're able to do it publicly. And in the, the latest trip that we took, and I'll share about that in just a second, uh, while I was teaching from the Bible, some police walked in. And they're taking pictures and talking on their phones and all of those things. So the jig is up, but they did nothing. They allowed that, and it's because of the mighty works of God in the country of Vietnam. So one of the people groups in Vietnam is called the Hmong, and it's a tribe group, um, and that's the ministry I want to talk to you about today because our focus in, in the fall in going there was to work with some partners among the people group called the Hmong. There are about a million of them living in Vietnam. They originally came from parts of China. They were persecuted and ostracized, so many of them uh, fled down to Vietnam and Laos and other countries around them. About a million, as I said, in the country of uh, Vietnam today. They are uh, divided into different groups, and you can guess why they call them black Hmong, red Hmong, white Hmong, flower Hmong. It has to do with the way they dress. The uh, Hmong have, uh-oh, I pushed the wrong button. Hey, that might be the right button. Okay, so they came across from China, and now the Hmong in Vietnam live all along the border here, which is a very mountainous region. Here's Hanoi, the capital, 
And uh, to get up to where we did ministry in the fall, it's about a 12-hour drive. Uh, partners planned to leave at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night after we had arrived there and we were wrestling with uh, uh, jet lag and all of that. And we were going to drive all night, 12 hours, get there, get here at 7 a.m., at, at 8 a.m., preach at a church, and then begin training that would last eight hours a day for the next few days. Some of us are too old for that. But that's where we were. The place they live, the Hmong live, are very much like this. They're mountainous areas. They do rice farming out there. This tribe of a million in Vietnam are considered to be the poorest, the lowest on the cultural and educational ring. They're the most persecuted. And today, here's a mighty work of God. Don't lose this. Don't miss this. A million Hmong living in the high remote mountain areas now, today, 2020, 400,000 of them, 40% of them know Christ as their Savior. It's an amazing thing. Uh, to get to where these people live, you may have to, you know, you won't have to travel by water buffalo, but you will have to pass some water buffalo. I, I confess that on the trip in the fall, on the way up to where we were headed, I threw up. We had to stop. Just So the Hmong, I've heard them in the past, and I heard it on this particular trip as well, thanking God for the communist government of Vietnam. And, you know, you say, well, how, why would you do such a thing like that? And they said, well, the communist government took control, and they wanted to get propaganda to us way up here in the mountains. And how, how are you going to do that? I mean, there are not even roads to a lot of these places. Many of them didn't speak Vietnamese at that time, couldn't read Vietnamese, so the communist government came up with a solution. They would distribute shortwave radios like this one to all of the villages throughout those mountainous regions and then they would uh, pipe in in Hmong language propaganda about communism. Here's what happened. The villages got those radios and they're playing with the dial and they come across FEBC out of Manila and in their own language they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there are villages in some of those places, remote places in the mountains there, where a missionary has never gone. No Christian, in fact, from the outside has ever gone there, and the whole village has come to Christ because of what the, the government provided, and that is shortwave radio. So they're thanking God. This is a mighty work of God. He can use anyone. He can use Cyrus, who doesn't know God. To accomplish his purposes. So now there are churches throughout these mountainous regions. Some of them are pretty large. This one that I preached at a year or so ago was uh, probably 300 people or so. And they're everywhere. You can't stop them. And not only are, is God bringing the gospel to the Hmong people, they immediately understood that it's God's plan for everybody, every tribe, nation, and tongue to hear the gospel. And so they're taking it. They're taking it to other tribes in the mountains there. They're going across the border into China. They're going across the border into Laos, both of which are communist 
countries where there's great persecution of believers, and they're actually planting churches. We heard the story of one, one group of Hmong that has gone back to China, and they've planted a church. Of, it's already got 60 people in it. This is a mighty work of God. Well, we spent our time in this past fall in the city, or the village, I should say, of Sen Suhoi Ho, a place you've never heard of. It'll be difficult for you to find it on any map, although I did find it on one. And that's where we went, just a place way up in the mountains where you have to throw up to get there. Looks like this. Less than 15 years ago, there was no road, no paved road, no road that you could take a vehicle other than a water buffalo down to get to this village. And then God showed up. That's the story I want to tell you about. The training that we were involved in took place at this training and retreat center, which is part of the miracle. This was built so that People would come there from other tribes and surrounding uh, places and hear the gospel here in this village. And also so that the, the leaders of churches among the Hmong, many of whom have yet to have any training in the Bible, they could gather together and they could get training. And so we met and we trained a group of uh, church leaders who had yet had no training whatsoever. And then we were also involved in training pastors, Hmong pastors, who are already leading congregations sometimes of several hundred people, but they desperately need training. And it all took place in this village. How did that happen? Well, here's the pastor of the only church in this village. We had the privilege one evening after doing training to go and visit with him, by the way, This is his furniture. One of our Vietnamese partners had a furniture company, and he makes furniture. And there's a wood in this area, a tree in this area, called nail wood. Red nail. Red nail wood. And so he came up with the brilliant idea of making furniture uh, out of that, and this pastor's house was full of it. This is our translator here. She put her hand down to, to, to get up, and... It was like a nail went right through her hand, and it's the furniture. There were no cushions on that stuff. Well, this pastor began to tell us the story that I'm going to just briefly uh, condense and tell you of the mighty works of God in this village. He came to know Christ about 12 or 13 years ago when he was 17 years old, and he was living in this village, and there was only one other believer in the village, and that was his dad who'd come to know Christ elsewhere. And when that took place less than 15 years ago, this, not rice, was the main crop that was raised in this particular village. Recognize it? Poppies, right, from which you make opium and other psychedelic drugs. At that point, when this pastor came to know Christ, about 12 or 13 years ago, 90% of the population of this very same village, teenagers and and adults, were addicted to opium. 
were taking opium. They were producing these crops. They were selling it across the border into China. They were uh, exporting it into Laos and into all the villages in the mountains surrounding them. This whole village was about opium, about drugs. The pastor himself was on drugs as a teenager, but he came to know Christ through his dad. His dad just shared the simple gospel with him. That's all he knew. This pastor trusted Christ as a Savior. God forgave his sins. He also delivered him from drug addiction. And so he began to tell that story. What he would do is on Sundays, he would invite people from the village to come and meet with them. And since he didn't have any training, he just opened the Bible and share the gospel with them. That's all he knew at that point. Talked about Jesus as being a savior and a deliverer, and people wanted to hear this message. He said that they would typically go up in the mountains, in the jungle, above their village, just, just north of uh, you know, where the village was, before they would come to church, and he said they would shoot up. They'd inject drugs, you know, they couldn't last that long. Otherwise, they'd come down, they'd listen to him flail away from the Bible and tell the gospel. And when they started shaking, the meeting was over and they'd go shoot up again. But they began to come to Christ. And they began to be changed and delivered from drugs. And so, 2019, at the end of 2019, when we were there, 90% of the very same village that was addicted to drugs is now following Christ as their Savior. 90%. Name one town in America where 90% of the population personally knows Christ and is following him as their Savior. Only God can do that. There are no drugs. There are no poppies in the fields around this village anymore. They got rid of alcohol. They got rid of everything. And they began to just meet together with this young pastor who only had a Bible, no training. And they began to read the Word of God. And God began to do what God alone can do. And that is the mighty works of God. One day they were reading in the book of Matthew and they came across Matthew 28. And Jesus' last words were, Go make disciples of all nations. This young new group of believers read that and they said hey jesus said go make disciples of all nations let's go do it hey let's you know let's get it going uh, obviously he means for us to do that let's go and as they were talking about that and starting to make plans one of them raised their hand and said wait a minute it's a half a day's journey to get from our village to the nearest town to the nearest place where there's people uh, except for those that live out in the mountains there. What, we can't do that. How, how can we do that? And they just started praying, asking God, well, God, you said do this. What are we going to do here? And uh, one day they were reading in Matthew 14, and they came across this story where Jesus is up in the mountains, and he's with his poor uh, disciples. They don't have any money. And there's this huge crowd of people, and Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to feed them. I want to the disciples, you go and feed this huge crowd of people. And the disciples said exactly what the people from this village were saying, and that is, we don't have any money. There's nothing we can do. If we can't 
go to the nations. We need to bring the nations here, but we don't even have a road to do that, and we have no money to build a road. But they read Matthew 14, and they said, well, Jesus had the same dilemma. He said to his disciples, feed them. What did, what did happen? Well, what happened was Jesus said, so what do you have? You don't have enough to do it. And they said, they went out and found the little boy with a lunch, and he had five loaves and two fish. And the Lord took the five loaves and two fish, and he multiplied it, and he fed the whole group. And so this young pastor says to this group of young believers, so where are our five loaves and two fish? And I said, yeah, we certainly don't have any fish up here in the mountains, you know. But after a little while, one of them went home and came back with a pig, because they had pigs. Another one then went home and brought back a bag of rice. Others went home and brought back vegetables. And they took their five loaves and two fish, and they gave it to the Lord. The Lord multiplied it, and they were able to buy enough cement to build a road up to their village. And they opened a marketplace where people from uh, the surrounding mountains could come and trade goods, and the people from this village just went down there, and they're sharing the gospel with every single one of them. That's how they were accomplishing the command to go and make disciples of all nations. They couldn't go, so they brought the nations to themselves. And it turned their village up down, upside down to the point that right behind me on the wall, you can't see it here, there, there are some pictures. One of those pictures is the pastor that I showed you in this little village up in the mountains on the, on the uh, border of China and Vietnam. It's a picture of him and the communist prime minister of Vietnam. Not in Hanoi, but in this village. Because the communist prime minister heard about what was happening here. He heard that this village that was all about drugs and selling drugs and using drugs and doing things to get drugs, and they no longer did that. They were changed. And now, this village that didn't even have a road, they've built guest houses so people can come and stay there and they can share the gospel with them. They've built a marketplace. They've trained people to go out with the gospel and, and the prime minister he, he wanted to know what happens because this uh, drugs and all this poverty is a huge issue in this country and so he came and he wanted to ask this pastor well, what happened and guess what the pastor told the communist prime minister of Vietnam the same stories that he told me the same stories that I'm sharing with you this is the mighty works of God we didn't do this we couldn't do this God did it. By the time the church leaders in Hanoi found out about the pastor, he had already baptized a thousand people and still going. He didn't know anything but the Word of God. Their church simply read the Word of God and expected, and they believed that God expected them to do it and that they only do it if he showed up and he showed up. And so, there are many more chapters to this story. I encourage this pastor to have this story written down, published, and we get it translated because people need to hear of the mighty works of God in a little village on the high mountains of North Vietnam. God doing what God alone could possibly accomplish, and it's a mighty story. One, I wanted to share this with you. One of their strategies, so I couldn't, 
all get down to the city until they built this road. Now they can get down to the city. And so they started in the church training teams of evangelist teams. They just teach them how to share the gospel. And they sent out 12 as taxi drivers to the city. They sent out 12 as tour guides up in the mountains. They sent 12 as restaurant workers, 12 as government employees, all of them trained for one thing. That's to share the same gospel message that came to that village that transformed their lives. And they're sent out, and every three months they give a report back to the church. The church prays for them. The church supports them. They support the church. It's probably the most strategic church that I've ever run across in all of our tramping around the world. And this is certainly the mighty works of God. I, I must say that it hasn't been easy. It is not easy. Uh, as they've sent out people, persecution has come. Uh, this brother spent three years in prison simply for sharing his faith. He's missing a lot of teeth because people in the prison beat him on a regular basis. He got out of prison, immediately began to go to surrounding towns, villages, and other tribes, and even, even across the border into Laos to share the gospel. That's evidence that this is a work of God. Well, God is at work. We should praise the Lord for his mighty works and give him glory. Uh, on the property where we did this training, somebody had built this wooden, handmade, I guess you'd call it the Ferris wheel. I don't know. Uh, these pastors, I talked them into getting on this thing. The guy had to come up and hammer it a little bit before they got on. You can't tell it, but if you're on the back side of this, uh, the guys in the back actually go over the edge of the cliff, and there's hundreds of feet down there. So they're exercising faith in God, but they're also expressing their joy in the Lord. We thank the Lord, and I hope you will too. And by the way, this church is a part of this miracle of God among the Hmong. God has used you. Uh, even in sending us to be a part of the training, God has used you. Uh, part of your uh, donations through SPEAR go to make this training possible for places just like this. So you're part of the miracle. You'll be part of the story when we hear it in heaven. Let's glorify God for his mighty words. He's worthy. He's worthy of praise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Thad, just turn the mic off when, when I'm done. Um, I will not know what that is. Susie and I just came back a week ago from three weeks of training, a, a training to do encouragement of missionaries and of Christian workers. And we spent a lot of time, in fact, we spent 128 classroom hours and lots of hours outside class studying about the subject. And we heard lots of stories of suffering and affliction and, um, yeah, pain among God's servants around the world. We met some people at uh, the training that we're involved in that were in the Philippines when several coup attempts took place. Our son, you know, we, we were in Japan, but our, both our son and daughter went to the Philippines, Manila, Faith Academy, a missionary kids school for high school. Our son was there when 
these coup attempts took place, but the missionary who was sharing about this talked about her friends being murdered in their bed in Manila when this happened. And that was suffering, and it was uh, traumatic for, for this missionary to get over that. We, we met a missionary who had spent several years in Russia, came back home. I won't tell you the mission agencies with, but when, he, when they came back home after several years and began to do ministry in the States, they lost a great deal of their support. He literally got to the point of calling uh, homeless shelters in the city where they live because they didn't have a place to stay, they had little food, and it was a, a difficult, painful, uh, traumatic time for them. It reminded me of a couple that Susie and I met when we first uh, went to Japan and were working in a place called Yamaguchi uh, Prefecture or Province. There was a couple there that had come to Yamaguchi for the same reason as us, and that's to plant churches, to share the gospel with people that had not heard it. And they had a strategy. Their strategy was, you know, Japan is an island country, and there are thousands of islands out in the inland sea of Japan. And so their strategy was they're going to have a boat built, and they were going to go out to those islands and you know, there are little fishing villages and farming towns there. They're going to share Christ with them. It's a great idea. They had three children when they came to Japan. They had a little baby girl that was born while they were there, while they were having this boat built. And they got it built about this time of year. It was in the winter. And they immediately thought, well, we're, we're going. This is why we had this thing built. So they got their family together, their baby, their, their three children. They got some Japanese co-workers together, and they headed out across the Inland Sea to go to an island to preach the gospel there, and on the way, their boat sank. Uh, probably wasn't the wisest thing to make that your very first trip, but they did, and it's winter, and so very cold, and hypothermia is, is definitely an issue, and all of them ended up in the water. They saw their three oldest children drown. They saw all of their Japanese friends drown, every one of them. The baby was held up out of the water by the dad, so he obviously couldn't swim. Held that baby up for two or three hours while they swam to the nearest island where the baby died of hypothermia. So suffering is real. It's real among missionaries. It's real among ministers of the gospel here in the States. Uh, a couple of days before we went to that conference, Susie and I visited a pastor friend who was in a hospital getting out the day we were there, suffering from breathing issues. We went. We came back yesterday. We went to his funeral and comforted his wife and three sons. So this is real. 2 Corinthians is written not by a first-term, wet-behind-the-years missionary, but by a grizzled, hardened, mature, theologically astute apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle. But he makes no secret about the suffering that he experienced on the mission field. And we're not here just to enter into his suffering. 
with him. We're here because he tells us that God was with him in that. In fact, God reveals himself, Paul, in that setting in a way that Paul had not experienced before and could not experience before. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the verses we're going to read, there's a brand new title of God. It's never been used before in the Word of God. And when somebody comes up with a new title for God, it's because they've entered into a deep, personal, intimate experience with God, and they want to share what they've learned. So follow along as I read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. In an, as short a time as I can possibly do it, I want to share with you three things that Paul reveals about why God allowed suffering in his life, why he allows suffering in the lives of his servants here in the States, why he allows suffering missionaries around the world, and that will be helpful to you in caring for those. But as we do that, you will also see three reasons, not all the reasons that the Word of God gives, but three reasons that God allows suffering and affliction in your life. And that will help you to come to know him much like Paul comes to know him. So listen as I read these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has been said in Ephesians and other places in the Word of God. But the next titles of God have not. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. Pay very close attention to the next two words. So that the keys, the indicators that God is going to reveal the answer to the question, why, what is he doing, follow the words, so that, or that in this passage. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we, which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you'll also share in our comfort. But we do not want you to be aware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. These are the words of a veteran, missionary, theologian, the man who says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The man who uh, with Silas sings in prison after being beaten. These are his words. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that 
was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. There's a lot of deep theology in this that I hope I can whet your appetite in the next very few minutes, enough that you will go back and spend some time in this passage and in this book. This is a book written by a missionary, by an apostle, who opens his heart and tells what it's like. In chapter 7, he gives another title of God, very similar to what you see in chapter 1. He said, it's God who comforts the downcast. He's talking about himself. He says in chapter 7, when I came to Asia, I was burdened on the inside, on the out, on the out, on the inside, I was full of fear. Paul said that. He said, on the outside, everywhere I looked, they were fighting. And it was too much for me. But God showed up. This is the message that he has for you and me. So what's the first reason? Look again with me at verse 4. He says, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, he comforts us in all our afflictions, which, by the way, are not going to happen unless he allows them, right? So why does he allow them? Why didn't he prevent that? Why didn't he keep the boat from sinking? Or protect those people from being shot in their bed? Or provide money so that this brother doesn't have to call the homeless shelter? He could have, but he doesn't. And here's why. Here's one of the reasons why. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you get it? Simple, but not easy. In fact, some of us read those verses and think, wait a minute, you mean God is allowing me to suffer for somebody else? So, to benefit somebody else? He's not thinking just about me. God, you mean that when I suffer, God comes and comforts me, and it's not just about comforting me? Exactly. That's just like God. He's always been that way. You go back to when he chose Abraham, Abram, who's a idolater, who doesn't know God, who's just as lost as everybody else around him. God chooses him just right out of the blue, pun intended. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that, same words, so that you'll be a blessing. And so that through you, I can bless all the families and the nations and the full of the earth by bringing the Savior through you. So God chose Abraham. He loved him. He, he set his blessing and his mercy and his grace on him. But it was never just about Abraham. And it's never just about you or me or Paul, or any other. He's always thinking of the others. A great illustration of this in the Word of God actually taught 
on this uh, this last time in Vietnam. It's the story you find. You don't need to turn there. It's very familiar. John chapter 11. Mary, Martha, Lazarus living in Bethany. Lazarus, who Jesus loves, gets sick. Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, who's in another place. Just want you to know, the one you love is sick. I have no doubt when they sent that messenger, they had 100% confidence that Jesus was going to heal their brother. I mean, they either saw or heard stories of how Jesus heard about somebody being sick, went to their house, he touched them or did something, Psst. Whatever illness they had, it's done. He raises them up. They probably had the story of a, a Roman centurion who said, he sent a messenger, he said to Jesus, not worthy for you to come. Just say the word. That'll be enough. Jesus says the word. He's here. The servant is there. Boom, he's healed. So Jesus has two options. He can stay where he is and say the word and Lazarus will be healed. Or he can come and touch Lazarus. Lazarus will be healed. And he does neither one of those. Neither one. Loves Lazarus. Loves Martha and Mary. He explains, Jesus does, to his disciples his plan. He said, I'm going to go there. Lazarus is going to die. In fact, we're going to wait here. We're not going we're going to stay right here for a couple more days. I'm going to go. He'll be already dead. And I'm going to raise him from the dead, and I'll be glorified. You'll believe in me. Others will believe in me. This is the plan. The only problem is he doesn't send a messenger to tell that to Mary or Martha. They are there when Lazarus suffers, takes his last breath, dies, and they bury him. They go to the funeral. Jesus is not there, and apparently he didn't say any words because Lazarus dies. Jesus comes. They go out to meet him. They say the same words Mary and Martha do to Jesus. Lord, we know, we're confident that if you had been here, your brother wouldn't have died. They don't say it, but they're thinking it. But you weren't. I don't know what it, maybe weren't, we weren't dedicated enough maybe we didn't trust in you enough i don't know maybe it was just out of your control i don't know he dies but here's what happens in that story as mary is at the feet of jesus saying these words the bible says in john 11 that jesus sees her weeping he sees the others weeping and mourning and grieving because Lazarus has died. And it says that he's moved deeply and disturbed, troubled in his heart. And then, John chapter 11, verse 35, perhaps the most amazing, shortest verse in the whole Bible, tells us that at that moment, Jesus sheds tears. He weeps with Mary. It makes no sense at all. He knows that in a few minutes, he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and he's coming forth. He's not going to be dead. This suffering is going to be over. 
But at that moment, the Son of God, the one that Paul refers to as the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, has an intimate experience with Mary that nobody else has had on earth up to this point, and that is God weeps with her. She entered into that experience with them, and it was precious. It was precious. She never forgot that. I'm sure she told it many times after that. But it was never just about Mary and Martha or Lazarus. God's intention was for 2,000 years later, us to know and to experience the God of comfort as we read that story. 2,000 years after that happened in North Vietnam among a group of Hmong pastors, we read that passage and we study that story and these men who are being persecuted for their faith and beaten and sometimes their church burns, sometimes their house burns, they encounter the God of all comfort and that was Jesus' plan in the beginning. It was never just about Mary and Martha. So that's one of his purposes. A lot more we could say about that, but think about that. Keep that in mind as he allows suffering in your life. Verse 8 and 9, take a look real quick here again. He says, I don't, he's explaining, he's giving a little detail of his suffering. I don't want you to be unaware of others, of the affliction we experience in Asia. We're, we're burdened beyond our strength. You know, for Paul to say that, I mean, for me to say that's one thing. Paul, who says, it was more than I could bear. His limits must have been way out here, and God allowed the suffering and the pain and the affliction to go beyond that. And he he says, verse verse 9, I felt like I'd received the sentence of death. I I felt like it was going to end it in death here. I just came to the end of myself. He admits that. He admits that. And then he gives the reason. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is a concept that Paul learned through suffering. He talks about it all through uh, 2 Corinthians. He talks about marvelous Our ministry is God has entrusted to us a gospel that can turn a whole village or a whole town or communist prime minister upside down, top of their heads, and do the impossible. He says it's greater than Moses and the Ten Commandments. God writes them with his face. Our message is greater than that. It's full of glory. And then he says, "And, and who's up to that? Who's sufficient for a ministry like that? Obviously answer is nobody is and then he says this but our sufficiency is in christ let me read you what he says and you can look at it later chapter four he says we have this treasure of gospel you've got it i've got it we have this treasure of gospel but we have it in jars of clay that would be a reference to you to me jar of clay brittle easily breakable not all that valuable on its own without 
the treasure that happens to be inside of it. God intentionally chose broken, weak, vulnerable people to entrust the gospel to. Why did he do that? He says this, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. He said, we're, we're afflicted, we're plexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down, we're always caring about the, in our body the death of Jesus, so that, purpose statement, the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus will be manifested. Here's the plan. God intentionally brings Paul to a place that is beyond his strength. His limits have been superseded. And God did it knowing that he could only take this much and God puts him there. Why did he do that? So God could show Paul and through Paul that the power was not in Paul. That he was insufficient. He was not up to the task. Only if God shows up is he going to be able to avoid crash and burn. And that's true for every person sent out of this church on ministry and every person sent on ministry in this church. God intentionally puts us in a situation in the remote mountains where there are crowds of people, thousands and thousands, and we've only got five loaves and two fish, and he turns to us and says, now you feed them. He does it on purpose because it's impossible unless he shows up. And he shows up. And you learn through that, and Paul learned through this experience, I cannot trust my training. I cannot trust the strength of my character and personality. I can't even trust my dedication to God. I can only rely on the presence and the power and the promises of an ever-present God. That's why God allowed this. He's going to allow it in your life. He's going to allow it in the lives of the ministers that he raises up in this church. A lot more we could say about that. The Bible is full of this subject. 2 Corinthians is full of this subject. Go to chapter 12. Paul, Paul is praying about a, a thorn in the flesh. Physical thing? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is he prays three times and God says, nope, I'm not taking it away. It's my plan to use it. And here's what I'm using it to teach you. My, my grace is sufficient for you, and your power is insufficient. It'll never be sufficient. God wants us to be underwhelmed with ourselves so we can be overwhelmed at him. And in the end, he gets the glory when the story is told of what he does in our lives. One more, and, and we're done. Um, this one should be of particular interest to you as a church. Verse 11. Paul said, Paul said in verse 10, Now I'm setting my hope on the Lord. I know he's my only hope. I know my power is not sufficient. And then he says this, But you, you have to help us. He's turning to the church in, in Corinth, and he says, And you've got to help us. 
This is part of the plan. This is part of what God is trying to accomplish here. You have to help us by prayer so that this will be the result. Many will give thanks on our behalf because of the blessing granted to us through your prayers. It wasn't all about Paul to begin with. And in the end, it's not all about Paul. Here's what God says. I've sent out this great missionary Paul, and I've brought him to places that are beyond his ability, beyond his uh, strength. He, it can, he will despair. He will be downcast because he is insufficient. And I did this on purpose, and one of the reasons I did this is so the church back home, the Corinthian church, he says the same thing to the Philippian church and to others. So that when they hear about what he's going through, they will pray. When they pray, God will act. And when God acts, they'll give him thanks. And they will praise him. They will be singing, it is well with my soul. Even when they hear stories of tragedy. They will as a church, come to know and worship and praise the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort because they will hear what I will do when they pray in that situation. That's the plan of God. You have an integral part to play in what God is doing in your pastor's life, in what God is doing in your Sunday school teacher's lives and ministry and the missionaries that God has sent out around the world. These are three of God's secrets that we couldn't know about unless he revealed them. Uh, this is in the context of Paul giving a title of God that's the first time you see it. Only time you see it in the word of God. You do see, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. And then he says this, he's the father of mercies. He allows bad things to happen to us. He didn't allow what we deserve to happen to us because he's the father of mercies. And when he allows it, we can discover him to be the God of all comfort. We can have the amazing experience while we're on planet Earth of the God of the universe coming alongside of us and weeping with us as we grieve, as we suffer. And then we can introduce the God of our comfort to others who are suffering. And we can point them toward him so that, like us, they'll set their hope on him. In that experience, we'll learn, if forgotten, and it's easy to forget, that you are insufficient. Your power is not enough. You cannot rely on yourself. You can only rely on God. He made it that way. If, you're, if you haven't seen that in your life, you're not walking intimately with him. Because if you do, it will lead there. It will lead to beyond you. And it's God's plan that as we encounter those situations that the body of Christ come along with us and they pray with us and then God responds. And when he does, 
all of us give him praise and thanks. I hope you'll take time to dig more out of this. I don't know if you're going through affliction. I don't know if suffering is a current reality in your life. It will be at some point. And at that point, you will need to know the God that Paul writes about in these verses. And he's there. You will be able to comfort others only to the extent that you have received and are receiving comfort from God himself. Otherwise, we don't have anything to give. We can cry with them, but we have no comfort. It's only as we're being comforted by this God that we have comfort to give. Let's pray. Thank you for your precious word, O God. Surely you know our lives. Often it seems that you're absent. Often we find ourselves puzzled in asking the question, why didn't you come? Why didn't you say a word? Why didn't you prevent this? Why did you allow this? Because you're the infinite God and we're finite people, we can never fully grasp your answer to that, but you have revealed in this passage of Scripture some of the things that you're trying to accomplish in us and through us. And we thank you. Oh, God, we long to know you as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We long to be able to comfort others with the same comfort that we are receiving and have received from you. Lord, we don't want to rely on ourselves. We simply want to throw ourselves upon you and your mercy and your grace and your power and your wisdom and your ever-present help in our times of need. Thank you that you're there. We pray in Jesus' name. Sing a song called Sing to Jesus. If you know this song, please uh, sing along, and uh, as you catch up with it, uh, sing with please.
Come to Jesus, Lord of our shame. Lord of our sinful hearts, He is our great Redeemer. Sing to Jesus, honor His name. Sing of His faith. Pouring his life out on to death. Our throne. 
now and forever. He is the King of heaven. Sing to Jesus. We are his own. Now and Sing for the love our God has shown. Thank you, Ron. Bob, there's no way I can thank you enough for this morning. It's tremendous for us to be able to, in the United States, witness what the Lord's doing around the world. I mean, you know, we have family and friends that we know that don't know Christ, and we see today this, this village of, of people that the Lord turned around, and 90% of that village belongs to the Lord. And praise be to his name. So thank you for sharing that with us. And obviously the word is very comforting uh, to all of us because all of us um, have at times things that come in our lives that maybe we're not expecting, uh, suffering and trials. And there have been many times when I've read that passage of Scripture because he is the father of mercies, and he is the God of all comfort. And just like that passage says, he can do things we can't do. <laughs> you know, and uh, we can be there for people, but at the end of the day, when the lights are turned out and it's just, it's just you, uh, he's the one that ministers to us. And so we're just so thankful for you and your ministry this morning, for Susie being here. Did you say she had something she, for us today? Okay, I didn't know if it was brownies or ice cream or I didn't know. I know. I was like, what does Susie have for us, you know? All right, well, we appreciate your ministry. I wanted to remind you guys before you left this morning about our missions conference right around the corner. We'll be here in a couple of weeks. Uh, make sure you pick up the Connect brochure. There's a lot of information in there that you'll need. The sign-ups are in the, the foyer out here, and make sure you sign up and... and uh, Hopefully, uh, we're all praying about what the Lord will do uh, during our missions conference. We look forward to, to that time together, and we thank the Lord for so many who've put this together and uh, allowed us to uh, experience a time together with our ministries. And obviously, having Josh McDowell come is a, a big deal, so we thank the Lord for that opportunity to be able to, to hear him and what the Lord's doing in his ministry. Why don't we uh, stand, and let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you that um, you are the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And we thank you for the reminder this morning to us that your saving ministry is continuing around the world. Thank you for allowing us 
here in the United States where we see so many people running the opposite way from you. Thank you that we're able to see testimony this morning of a village that's come to know you, a good percentage of them. I pray for that pastor, and Lord, I just pray that you would continue to work in in him and in the village there. Thank you for Bob and Susie and their faithful um, service to you over these many years. Um, Help us to be sensitive, Lord, to those around us that may just need us to, to pray with them, to maybe write a card, make a call, whatever it is. Help us to be sensitive because the suffering that takes place in our lives, just like Bob says, is for a reason, so that we may be able to comfort those that are in affliction. So thank you for our time this morning. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.